Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrel per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels. But we cannot allow the fossil fuel industry to use this as an excuse to reverse everything we're doing. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Making Putin seem small and out of touch is exactly what this administration's strategy is. I wouldn't want to tell him the truth. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, here comes the oil. 180 million barrels from the Strategic Reserve as President Biden takes another swing at inflation and Vladimir Putin in a single bound. But will it work? Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with a special focus today on our economy against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. We'll be joined in a moment by Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Michigan, serves on the House Budget and Ways and Means Committees. And we'll talk about the impact of the president's new plan, what it might mean for prices here with oil analyst Tom Closa. And the signature panel is in place today. We'll have Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis for the hour. You knew it was coming if you were watching or listening to Bloomberg earlier today. A rolling release of crude oil from the nation's strategic petroleum reserves announced today by President Biden. Today I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels for the strategic from the from the strategic petroleum reserve. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. He says prices could drop anywhere from 10 to 35 cents a gallon. Then again, no one knows. Once gas stations, that is, use the fuel they already bought at higher prices. The president also announcing a new use-it-or-lose-it policy for oil companies that are holding drilling permits without, yes, using them. This is where we start with Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Michigan, Chief Deputy Whip, serves on the Budget and Ways and Means Committees. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's good to be back. We're looking today at the biggest ever release of oil uh, from our strategic reserve, a big story coming from the White House. Do you support this move by the president? I do. I don't think by itself it solves the problem, but it's a step. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see us do a couple other things. Uh, but this is a step in the right direction. People need relief at the pump, and this will make a difference in terms of the prices they're seeing for everything. What else should we be trying then? Well, I think a couple of things. One, I support a temporary suspension of the federal and state gas taxes. You know, in my case, in Michigan, that could mean 45 cents or so uh, yeah. relief at the pump. Combine that with additional inventory that the president is going to put into the market through the release of Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Mm -hmm. and, and other small things, like, for example, allowing for a higher blend of ethanol during the summer months, which right now is prohibited for no real good reason. 
Hmm. Uh, that would provide some marginal relief. You put these things together, and while people may still be paying more than they would like, they'd be paying less than they are now, and I think that's really what we need to work on. Uh, while we're getting through this crisis yeah. caused by the pandemic and, of course, partly by what's happening in Ukraine, people need relief, and we need to do what we can to help. Speaker Pelosi had an interesting take on the gas tax holiday today. I know this is something that's been knocked around a little bit, as you're referring to. I'd love for you to respond to what she said. Here, here she is. The pro is very showbiz. Okay, let's just do something. There it is. But it is not necessarily landing in the pocket of the consumer. It's taken out of the trust fund. We have to pay for that to return it. I think I know what she means by showbiz, Congressman. Do you agree uh, that that's, that's a component of this, that it's, it makes a good headline but might not do a lot to prices? Well, I think if done by itself, the federal gas tax isn't, doesn't provide dramatic relief. Done with state gas tax reduction mm-hmm. and with an increase in inventory and with a higher ethanol blend, these little pieces that by themselves might not make a difference really do add up. So I disagree with the notion that, we, that this doesn't make any difference. I, I understand the speaker's point because I've spoken to her about this, and she's concerned, of course, that the oil companies – We'll simply take whatever relief we provide right. through a gas tax reduction and just increase their prices at the pump. You know, partly what we need to do is hold them accountable while we're also doing these other things. And that's obviously a, a challenge. She also expressed some concern that oil companies run wild here, right? She said we will not let them undo the progress that we've made, referring to the transition to renewable energy. That's not something you can control legislatively, though, is it? Well, it's difficult. I mean, one of the things we can do is try to balance the scale a little bit by providing incentives for additional development of renewables, which we think is both good for our economy and good for the environment. Should we incentivize more drilling for fossil fuels as well? Believe me, the oil companies get plenty of tax uh, breaks as it stands right now, and Mm. they seem to be doing just fine. While consumers want, say, electric vehicles or solar panels, making the numbers work and helping them get to scale so that it's market-based is a little more difficult. But Mm -hmm. I think at this point in time, uh, I think the oil companies are doing just fine and probably don't need more tax breaks. Congressman Kildee, inflation is driving so much of the conversation right now in Washington. Any story I ask you about has some sort of connection to it. Energy prices, food prices, drug prices. The president says he's still pursuing legislation to lower the cost of prescription drugs. He mentions it in almost every speech, and I know you have your own bill that would specifically cut the cost of insulin. How would it work? Well, this would simply place a cap, uh, no matter what sort of insurance an individual has, whether it's Medicare, one of the Medicare Advantage or Part D plans, or private insurance, no more than $35 of the cost of insulin could go to the consumer. So it essentially caps the consumer out-of-pocket costs, because right now we know there are people who are going without their insulin because they can't afford it. Now, I do support broader efforts to reduce the overall price of insulin and lots of other drugs through price negotiation. So far, we haven't been able to get that legislation through the Senate. Mm -hmm. So what we've proposed is, okay, if some of our colleagues are unwilling to take that step, maybe we'll get some other members of Congress and senators who will. But in the meantime, let's do what we can. And insulin, because it's a 100-year-old drug that has not substantially changed, is an easy one for us to to try to reduce the cost for and and save a lot of lives in the meantime. You've got support in the House. Do you have support in the Senate, or don't you know yet? 
We do. I know it's a priority for Senator Schumer. Uh, Senator Raphael Warnock from Georgia has yep. introduced the same legislation that, that I've introduced in the House. And so we have a path. The path in the Senate's more difficult yeah. because they have rules that are, I think, rather uh, antiquated, where any member of the Senate can basically stop anything, at least for a time. But that doesn't mean we can't get it done. If the American people speak up, people who are diabetic are Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and they need help no matter what their political ideology is, or even if they don't think about politics at all. Congressman, you have a unique view of the president's budget drop this week, being on both the Budget and Ways and Means Committees. Do you support the tax hikes the president is proposing here to pay for this, along with the the tax proposed, at least, on unrealized gains? That seems to keep coming back up. It does, and we're going to take a close look at the budget. I'm going to go through, as a member of the Budget Committee, I, I, I generally support the priorities of the president. I'm going to take a much closer look at all of the implications. I do think the current tax code is unfair. It's unfairly tilted in favor of people at the very top of the economy. Mm-hmm. What plan we ultimately implement as a part of our deliberations will be informed by the president's proposal. Uh, I need to take a deeper look at it, but yeah, I generally support the notion that we need to put more of the burden on those people who have benefited so greatly and got a huge tax cut in 2017 and make sure they pay their fair share. I think it was Senator Joe Manchin who said, how do you tax something you don't have? You know, With the idea of unrealized gains, how do you make that work? And is yeah, it I mean, fair? At that point, we're talking about essentially taxing value or wealth as right. opposed to taxing income, and that is more complicated. That value can go down after you pay taxes on it, right? Right. But this is obviously a statement of values, as they say. Can this budget pass in whatever form in time for the next fiscal year? I hope so. I mean, you know, it's been years since we've been able to get uh, a full year budget passed before October 1. Yeah. We've been in the House. We've been able to get our appropriations bills done. We haven't seen that kind of action in the Senate. We're going to do it again now. We're going to start the process right now and get those bills done. It starts with the Budget Committee. Then it goes to the Appropriations Committee. I'm hopeful that by midsummer we will have substantially passed in the House a full-year funding budget. The Senate is a different <laughs> story. Yeah, I want to ask you to weigh in on the other chamber. How about the COVID funding? Speaker Pelosi was pretty upset today, called it shameful uh, about the number that she saw. This started as a $22 billion request from the White House. There's still nothing, sir. Yeah, we need to pass this. And I, you know, there are aspects of it that we could all argue about, but I don't think we can argue that we don't need this help. In order for us to continue to push through and get through this pandemic, we need to make sure, like, for example, the proposal that the president laid forward for people to be able to get access to COVID remedies, not, not, just, not just a vaccine, mm-hmm. but some of the proven COVID remedies at the point where they're testing positive, that requires us to stand that up. We need the testing material. We need to make sure we have those remedies readily available. I know a lot of folks want to just say the pandemic's over. We have to accept the good news that it's getting a lot better. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we stop everything, and, and we need to finish the job, and I, I support the president's effort to get that done. Lastly, Congressman, will the House make a statement on the war in Ukraine by coming to terms on a sanctions bill? I hope so. I mean, I have my own legislation that I've introduced with Congressman Tom Malinowski that would allow us to seize and sell the assets of some of these oligarchs. And and, uh, obviously that gets directly at Putin and his wealth. (laughs) We do need to crush Putin and his – this is like a mafia family that he's running. Well, it's like everyone agrees on this, but how come Congress can't seem to get it together with an actual piece of legislation? Well, I mean, the, the framers of our Constitution intentionally made it difficult for us to get things done.
done. I hope we can overcome that. I'm willing to compromise with my friends in the Senate. We've been able yeah. to act in the House. We need to get both bodies together. So I think that's it's fair criticism, especially at this moment. We need to act. Congressman Dan Kildee, it's a pleasure to have you. We'd love to compare notes as we get further down the road on all this. Thanks for being with Absolutely. us on Bloomberg. Thank you. Coming up, we assemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with more on the politics of oil. And we'll talk to an expert later this hour, Tom Closa of the Oil Price Information Service, will join us at the bottom of the hour. Markets and traffic are on the way. This is the fastest hour in politics. Sound on. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the Biden administration goes for broke with the latest release from the Strategic Reserve, the biggest ever, 180 million barrels over six months. But, well, it's not as simple as that. For starters, the oil will need to be replaced, right? Hopefully at lower prices than we are selling these. And there are members of the president's own party, including the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who are concerned about what this drive for more oil will mean for the transition to renewable energy. The price of oil is an indicator of the price of gas at the pump is an indicator. Putin has exacerbated it. But we cannot allow the fossil fuel industry to use this as an excuse to reverse everything we're doing to save the planet. And so we assemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. This is a smart move, Jeannie. The president says maybe 10 cents, maybe 35 cents a gallon. No one knows. Let's say things get worse in Ukraine. Prices keep going higher. We're, we're, we're moving a lot of oil out of the reserve here that's supposed to be in place for a crisis. And I realize we could define this as one. Is the president going in the right direction? You know, they are doing what they can. You know, it is not lost on any of us that the president met with Democrats yesterday. And and what he had had to hear is how terrified they are looking at November. So politically, it is not a surprise that they are trying to do what Democrats have been asking them to do. Get out there and do something about the price of gas, with their mm. which their constituents are so frustrated about. And yet, by any sort of examination of this, this is a short-term, small political band-aid on an otherwise much larger problem and the president's ability to impact and decrease the cost of gas and oil is very very limited so it is a step but it's not one that is going to ultimately address this problem so does that make a good politics or not rick the perception of the president doing something i realize is a positive but how important is the results at the pump you know, it just depends on how successful he is in convincing voters that he's actually trying to do something and, and as able to actually make some impact. He can't just claim he's helping you at the pump and the pump doesn't change, right? Yeah. American voters are smart enough to know what the price of gas is every week now. Uh, it's it's everywhere. And uh, people call you all the time, hey, I drove by a gas station and saw $6, <laughs> $6 a right. gallon. I mean, like that is a real possibility of leading us all the way into the midterm. So mm-hmm. he's actually got to make progress. And, and I think all these things that 
Uh, Congressman Kildee talked about were great, and I think that this announcement to hit the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is great. But, like, why hasn't he called in oil producers in the United States, yeah. quit going over to Venezuela and talking to those despots, and, and say, pump more? I mean, I well, really think that there's there's no logic to him not meeting with oil executives and asking for more on their hat. Well, that brings behalf. us to this use it or lose it policy. I want to ask you guys about this. We've talked about this on the program before. The president likes to refer to this 9,000 number, 9,000 oil drilling leases that are not being used, that he, as they say, the oil companies are sitting on them. Uh, he wants this to stop. I'm calling for a use it or lose it policy. Congress should make companies pay fees on wells on federal leases they haven't used in years and acres of public land they're hoarding without production. Companies that are already producing from these wells won't be affected. But those sitting on unused leases and idle wells will either have to start producing or pay the price for their inaction. So the worry here is, by the way, I'd, I'd like to know, Jeannie, if you think it's a good idea, because the worry is the critics are saying in the industry that oil companies will just say to hell with it then and they'll stop drilling. They won't They won't hold these leases. That's right. And, and, you know, I think we see a lot of blame being spewed out there by the Biden administration, blaming Putin, blaming the oil companies. But, you know, the reality of this is just having a permit is not the only issue when it comes to production. A lot of other issues are at stake. One of the big ones, and your clip by Nancy Pelosi speaks to this, is you've got companies who are afraid they're going to invest in this now yeah. and yet politically be hit by Green, Deal new, le- uh, Green new Deal legislation. Is that what she's saying, though? Well, I don't think she's saying that. I think they are thinking that. And until I think they hear from the president that they if they go out and they drill the way he wants them to or says he wants them, they're not going to be hit on the back end in a couple years, two or five years later, by some new legislation and some new taxation. And this is the trap Joe Biden is in between the progressives and the political reality here. And I think Nancy Pelosi talking about it is something that, you know, he probably doesn't want her to talk about publicly, but that's the reality (laughs) of her, you know, her entire caucus over there. Yeah, I thought it was an important moment in in her briefing today, Rick. I'm, I'm just not sure exactly what she's talking about. We're not going to let oil companies take advantage of this moment. The, 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 the Democratic president is asking them to pump more. Yeah, she is trying to have it both ways. I mean, you know, and, and, and that's why it doesn't make any sense, because you can't say out of one side of your mouth, hey, the oil companies are hurting the American public. They're right. partially to blame because they're not pumping enough oil. And that's why your gas prices are so high. And then say right out of the other left side of her mouth that, you know, all of a sudden and don't worry, we're going to go on your behalf, public and bash mm-hmm. the oil producers because we really need a cleaner environment. Well, at this stage, I think everybody needs to understand that the country is in trouble. We're spending too much on the price of oil and gas. We're in a war with one of the largest gas producers yeah, in the world. National security implications. Exactly. And if this is a Defense Production Act kind of thing, then that's yeah. what it needs to be. But Nancy Pelosi ought to quit trying to play politics with this and have it both ways. Quickly, Jeannie, does the president need to stop calling it Putin's price hike? Weren't we having this conversation, albeit it went up a lot recently, but before the war? Yeah, he needs to stop doing it for a variety of reasons. The main one is is that it's not only gas going up, it's food, transportation, housing, oh, everything else. Right. People know that. They're not just going to blame Putin for that. The Putin price hike. Thank you, Rick and Jeannie. They'll be with us for the hour. We'll reassemble the panel after we talk to Tom Closa. Let's get real about this. What will it actually mean for supplies and prices? We'll talk to the Global Head of Energy Analysis, the Oil Price Info Service, next. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Reporters had one big question for President Biden today after he announced the SPR release today, the big oil release. What will happen to prices? How far will they fall? I guess that's two questions. And the president was careful with his answer. And there's going to be a slight delay because if you go out there and you're a gas station and you purchased X amount of gas at a certain price, you're not going to lower the price of the pump until you're able to get back what you invested. And that, I'm talking matter of, I think, you know, days and weeks. But it's hard to tell. And the other thing is, exactly, but it will come down. And it could come down fairly significantly. It could come down the better part of, you know, anything from 10 cents to 35 cents a gallon. 10 cents to 35 cents. He actually came out with that. It's pretty specific. After the, the caveats on how gas stations work. And we're joined now by Tom Close. He knows how this all works. The global head of energy analysis for the oil price information service back with us on Bloomberg Radio. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Tom. Uh, how did this hit you today? You hear about an extra million barrels a day. What does that do to prices? Well, he had used the pop, uh, pop gun before with very small releases, but this is a major release. I mean, 108 million barrels over six months uh, is very significant. We've never seen anything like it. And it does make sense to this extent. The price right now is about $102 a barrel. The price uh, six, seven, eight, nine months from now is probably in the 90s. So you can buy it back at a cheaper price. And as far as his prediction on gasoline prices go, that was pretty close to what I would suspect. I suspect you'll see most of it. Yeah, I suspect you'll see most of it in the next six or seven weeks. And then when we get from Memorial Day through Labor Day, it really depends on U.S. refineries, whether they're threatened by storms. And of course, the ultimate wild card is what does Vladimir Putin do? There's talk at the White House that as early as tomorrow, we could learn about other countries getting involved in a massive, I guess, even more massive coordinated release. The U.K. has indicated that it would be on board uh, if this becomes uh, a good number of countries, how, how meaningful would that be? Well, I think it would be meaningful, but I, I would differentiate the way that it works overseas. We have our oil in four strategic underground domes, whereas mm-hmm. in Europe, I believe that it's in commercial inventories. So if they actually dump oil on the market, they're dumping oil that they have standing at the ready for refineries. So it's a little oh. bit more complicated in Europe where they don't have the underground storage that we do here. China has plenty of strategic petroleum reserves in storage, but I don't think they're going to be one of the ones that's lured to go along with uh, President Biden. 10 to 35 cents is a pretty big uh, gap there. Are, Are you thinking more 10 or more 35? What can Americans actually prepare for? I think you should prepare for that range. But if you live on the West Coast, you may actually see a little bit more because prices there overreacted to where we had some California counties that were above $6 a gallon. Don't get me wrong. The West Coast is going to be much more expensive than the rest of the country. If you're in the middle of the country, I think you'll be lower. You know, there's something I call petroleum weather. It's like the uneven heating of the earth. And the diversity in the weather across the country, cheaper crude from Canada in the middle of the country, uh, more demand for global energy on the East Coast and the West Coast with carbon charges. So uh, there's a there's a reason behind the diversity. 
So, Tom, we're at 424 uh, on average today, I believe, from AAA, the national average. You're suggesting in 10 to 35 cents, we, we drop below $4 a gallon. Can that hold through the summer driving season? Uh, it can hold through the summer driving season if we don't have hurricane impacts. And you don't necessarily need to have a hurricane hit a refinery. Yeah. All it needs to do is threaten it and you lose some production. We've already lost about 520,000 barrels a day of refining in Louisiana from Hurricane Ida and also from a closure because it wasn't making any money. And Europe is really hamstrung because their prices for natural gas, hydrogen, electricity are so high that they can't send their product here. Yep. Uh, the interesting thing, Joe, is you know everybody focuses on gasoline prices because it, it's the third rail in American politics. Let me give you a number. Right now, the wholesale number for jet fuel on the East Coast is $4.95 a gallon, or approximately $208 a barrel. Uh, if you're like me, you know that airline CEOs are scheming right now to raise my fares and to squeeze me to the tiniest seat they could find possible. Boy, I'll tell you, uh, what happens to crude oil prices uh, with all this, Tom? Yeah, before the, the Biden speech, I would have said that crude oil is going to be in this incredible range between ninety and one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel. I still think it's going to be range bound, and it's going to be very difficult to go below ninety dollars unless we have a recession, and nobody wants to root for that. Uh, but I think maybe the top number comes down a little bit. Now, you know, it's wild cards. I mean, if OPEC Plus, which has an adversarial relationship with the Biden administration, if they decide we're not going to put an extra 425,000 barrels a day each month on the market, uh, things could change. Vladimir Putin, you know, has this capacity to punish his people uh, like a typical Russian leader. And he might withhold hydrocarbons, whether it be gas or oil, from Europe. So uh, I have not seen a challenge for a president in my lifetime like this. Even Jimmy Carter had it easy compared to President Biden. That's saying a lot, uh, Tom. What's the what's the the thing that keeps you up at night? What's your concern uh, that you as you look across uh, the headlines to Ukraine that could send prices higher instead of lower? My concern is that uh, we're going to have structurally higher prices for a long period of time because we've seen very smart, very capable Western companies withdraw from Russia. Yeah, I think ExxonMobil. It includes BP, it, include, it includes uh, the Norwegian company. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that Russian engineering isn't capable, but when we've seen this happen before, it arrests any of the growth and it stunts a lot of the production. So it could be that we're setting up Russia, or not we're, but Vladimir Putin's for very, very uh, low production out a few years from now. Tom Closa, Global Head of Energy Analysis for Oil Price Information Service. Pleasure to compare notes with you, as always. We'll reassemble the panel next for more on this. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cutereconomicforum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Just got word from Capitol Hill. The U.S. House has enough votes to pass the insulin price cap bill that we talked about with Congressman Dan Kildee. That's his bill. Looks like he got it through the House. The question is, can it pass the Senate? And this is not to be confused with the greater effort to lower prescription drug prices. This is specific to insulin, something that we were discussing a little bit earlier this hour. I wanted to let you know that that is moving as we speak right now. The question, though, is what happens to the COVID money? Democrats and Republicans, as I read from the terminal, are near agreement on a $10 billion COVID funding package as the White House mounts a last-ditch effort to salvage money for global vaccine efforts championed by President Biden. We talked about this yesterday, if you were with us. president says we're running out of everything. We're running out of tests. We're running out of monoclonal antibody treatments. We're running out of other therapeutics. It's going to be kind of a rolling running out of everything by the time we hit September. And if you think back a little bit, if you were playing along on your home game, the president actually requested $22 billion for this. It did not end up in the omnibus bill. I'm not going to go into why. It's just, if you're not there yet, you're probably not going to be. So now they want to get this done as a standalone. But there's $10 billion instead of $22 billion that the president had first asked for. The Speaker of the House is not happy about it. This is shameful. We have to get the money. It's not going to last this past probably June 1st. Not going to last past June 1st. As we reassemble the panel, Rick and Jeannie are with us here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, is this is this about politics, Rick, or or about offsets or unused money with the states? This is getting confusing. We need to get this done, don't we? Uh, I, I think we need to get this done. I mean, part of what you found when the Senate negotiators sat down, I think, in earnest on a bipartisan basis, was that nobody could actually tell them from the administration – how many vaccines we had in inventory, how much mm. money is already available for this at the state level. Um, I mean, the, the audit you would normally say, which is, hey, if we're going to spend an extra $20 billion, you know, uh, just let us know whether you really need it or not. And nobody could actually answer that question. So I think slimming down had a lot to do with what we really think we need rather than yeah. just what the administration wanted. Mitt Romney's in the middle of this, apparently close to a deal with Chuck Schumer. Uh, Jeannie, he says a billion dollars in global vaccine funding could be added to this, but only if other funding is cut. He's, they're not going above $10 billion, and it's got to be fully paid for, he says. They would use unspent money previously allocated to aid businesses. Uh, does it sound like reality? It does. I mean, and to your point, Romney has really taken the lead on this. And, you know, I think we will probably get see this get through at $10 billion. You know, the stunning part about this, and this is where I agree with Nancy Pelosi, is that we are talking about the you know, a pandemic that has killed so many Americans, so many people around the world. And one of the lessons we were supposed to take away from that is we need as a country and a world to be better prepared for these things. Mm-hmm. And yet we are running into, you know, this political juggernaut that is Congress in terms of getting the funding needed to do yeah. basic things like this White House took tests. a lot of criticism, as you remember, for not being ready with all the tests needed when Omicron hit. Uh, Omicron was not the deadliest strain. If we get another one like that, everyone's begging for tests again. This is this is the conversation that we need to be having, right? 
That's right. And, and let's not forget, we do have another variant. We have this BA2. I, yeah, I'm right. in New York City. People 25 to 34. There is an increased number of in terms of people that are coming down with that. So hopefully this thing is coming to an end. Hopefully it's over. But we need to be prepared as a nation and as a world. And absolutely, none of us should be caught flat-footed because Congress can't push this through. I agree with, with, with Rick that you know we do need to know where this money has gone and what's in inventory. And it's stunning that we don't have that basic information. Yeah. Well, I look. So if they pass ten billion dollars, Rick, I'm just curious. Nancy Pelosi says we run out in June. White House says we need twenty two. Let's find out where we are, I guess, in July and see what the heck the number was supposed to be. Because no, I, somebody's telling the truth here. Uh, the other big. Uh, <laughs> It's not often I read headlines from the pages of Marijuana Moment, but here I am. This is coming as well from your House of Representatives. House formally advances federal marijuana legalization bill for floor vote with praise from Pelosi. Yes, she was talking about that today, too. This is the decriminalization of it. It's the decriminalization of it. And the fact is, is many states have already done that. And so this is consistent with what is happening in many states across the country. As I read in the story, the House today approving the final rule to advance a bill to federally legalize marijuana to a floor vote. It's expected to happen Friday, tomorrow. This is the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, the MORE Act. And it came from a member of the leadership, uh, Jerry Nadler of New York. Rick, we talked about this a couple of days ago. I don't think you were with us. Uh, It's going to pass the House. Apparently, this is only the second time a bill like this has gotten to the floor. It's not going to pass the Senate, however, right? We just keep going around on this again and again. What is it about the stigma in the United States Senate? Well, it's going to need 60 votes in the Senate to pass, uh, and and it'll have most, if not all, of the 50 Democrats. So where are you going to go Mm -hmm. find 10 Republicans? Republicans don't want to legalize uh, marijuana, right? I mean, in, in most of the states, there's some form of it, whether it's recreational or medicinal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they still. But don't where's think it's the a disconnect on that? It's in a lot, a number of Republican-led states. Uh, how come that doesn't translate to those representing the states? You know, because I think that one of the things we're seeing is a movement, uh, especially with young people coming into the voting age population, 90 million new millennials, uh, Gen Zers. Uh, who actually don't see any uh, downside to uh, recreational marijuana, and and they're starting to vote. And most of these Republican office holders, and frankly, a lot of Democrats, because remember, Democrats couldn't get this thing through the their their leadership in the past. I mean, Schumer hasn't always been a big supporter of medical right. marijuana. And so um, I, I think it's just a disconnect, much like we saw with gay marriage, much like what we saw with abortion. But I it's mean, cultural is your cultural, point. Cultural issues are now seeping through the system and the difference between the voters and the elected office holders mm-hmm. uh, are pretty substantial on this. I don't well, think the culture anybody... overrides the promise of a heck of a lot of money in tax revenue, right? Well, I mean, I don't think anybody's sitting there breathlessly hoping to get tax revenue off the sale of dope, right? I mean, I think they want to make sure that the communities are safe and and if and if and if they are able to ensure that uh, and there's it's not a clear sign of victory for people, you know, who are on the pro marijuana side that the yeah. states that have done this have actually done well. So a lot of states have have been disappointed in the tax revenue they've gotten uh, decriminalization. I don't think there's a single senator or congressman who oppose de- decriminalization, but that's not all this bill does. Uh, what, so tell me more. What what is it? The expungement that that's the issue? I think uh, expungement and the taxation, because once yeah. you tax, it's legal, right? And so, yes. 
And that means that it can uh, now be moved across state lines, which it currently is not allowed to be. It opens up the banking system. Uh, right. To, uh, but the and those are industry. deal breakers, though, is your point. I, I think they have been in the past for Republicans. Uh, again, they're, they're going to have to take a sharp look at what the politics of this are, because, as you point out, their home states are voting for this. Yeah, and right. so they're either going to be on the I'm showing leadership by not not saying yes to this or I'm going to go along with what's happening in my home state. What's going on in the White House on this, Jeannie? President Biden spent well, then candidate Biden spent a lot of time as did Kamala Harris, uh, promising to address this issue. Activists have been very upset with them for not. Yeah, and, and you know, I think President Biden, I, I think there is a generational issue here. I, I do think that President Biden did express on the campaign trail, we know, support. And yet I feel like he does not want to put his weight behind something like this. He doesn't think it's politically going to benefit him enough. And so we are not seeing them come out. And progressives and activists are rightly frustrated by that. I will tell you, I talk to young people all the time. Many of them are just baffled by the fact that it would take any thought to do something like this because it's in 37 states. So the vast majority of these young people have grown up in states where this is entirely legalized. And, you know, I I would say one thing you do hear from Republicans, and we heard it on the show the other day. They say, why does the federal government need to get involved? Let the states handle it. But, of course, that raises questions that Rick was just talking about, about interstate commerce, about banking Mm -hmm. and all those kinds of activities. Before we put this away uh, for now, Jeannie, though, is this good for the Democratic Party? This is should this be part of the party platform? I think it should. You know, Democrats are losing support amongst young people since the 2020 election. One way to potentially attract them, which is difficult to do, is to move <laughs> Is to forward. light them up. Well, I, you know, I don't want... Okay, Joe Don't Matthew. bogart that joint. Rick and Jeannie, thank you as ever. Our panel, our signature panel, because they're the best. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. It's partly why you come here, right? The fastest hour in politics. And we've got one more of these with Renita Young. Women's History Month. This is it. Yes, the next quarter's tomorrow. So for Thursday, March 31st, our daily installment, here is Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1888, women's rights activists Sojourner Truth and Susan B. Anthony were among key women who established the National Council of Women of the United States. It's the oldest American non-sectarian women's organization. The group was comprised of several women's voluntary organizations with common interests in the educational, political, and social rights of women. The primary purpose of the National Council of Women in the U.S. was to act as a clearinghouse or Information Bureau for its members so they can broaden awareness of each other's activities and so they could collaborate better, reducing duplication of efforts. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Thanks, Renita. And to everyone for jumping in today, beginning with Congressman Dan Kildee, Tom Closa, and of course, Rick and Jeannie, the fastest hour in politics already over. Wait, that means tomorrow's April Fool's Day. Be careful when you wake up. We'll meet you back here. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.